Today's episode is called The Facial Personal Trainer, featuring guest Carice Laguerre. Few things in life can compare with the pain of watching your children suffer without the means to help. This nightmare scenario became a reality for Caress as her offspring battled with undiagnosed breathing issues. A registered dental hygienist, Caress began training with leading experts in the field of orofacial myology and soon became an expert herself. Utilizing her new training, she was able to steer her children to a miraculous full recovery. How would you describe what you do as a myofunctional therapist? So myofunctional therapy, I think the easiest way to put it is that it's kind of like personal training, but just for the muscles below the eyes, but above the shoulders. So we're kind of staying in this area here. Now, what we do is we help to strengthen and coordinate these muscles because when there's dysfunction, it causes all sorts of problems be it mental problems, sleep problems, digestive problems. There's a numerous set of problems. So we just really help to work out those muscles. That way we can facilitate better sleep, breathing, and swallowing. Really? Yeah. How how do people know to go see a myofunctional therapist? I don't know very many people who know what a myofunctional therapist is. (laughs) That's a very good one. So usually if they're finding us on their own, it's because they've kind of gone down some rabbit hole where they've tried so many things to try to help them overcome maybe obstructive sleep apnea because there's a lot of research to link myofunctional therapy and using your muscles in order to get better sleep and to stop that uh, collapse of the airway. Or usually your dentist would be a really good first place to hear that you need myofunctional therapy. They're looking and working all through here and so they catch a lot of signs of oral dysfunction before any other providers would. Right. Such a fascinating career. How did you discover that this was a career you wanted to pursue? Well, I am a registered dental hygienist by my first primary trade, and so it was really in the dental field that I was introduced to it, but it was through my children. So I happened to be working for a pediatric dentist at the time when I first got into this about five years ago, and she was looking at my children and kind of going through all the things that she could tell about them and their health history, like the fact that I had one that had ADHD and had a lot of impulse and behavior control issues. I had another one who had every sleep issue under the sun. I had another one who had like these really large tonsils. We were always on some sort of antibiotic for, you know, ear and throat infections. And she could tell what was going on just from the way everything was developing craniofacially. So I, I jumped into it deep because of my children, but it really did all start with dentistry. Dentistry. From dentistry into myofunctional therapy. Yeah. Yeah. You would think it's like a big jump, but actually it's not because I think many of us have heard that saying, I guess is what it could be called, that form follows function, right? So developmentally, when we're developing, if there is dysfunction within the soft tissues and all the muscles that are in the oral facial structure, it's going to affect how the heart tissues form, right? So you'll you'll have things like crowding of the teeth, you'll have an inability to really be able to swallow properly. You're gonna have a lot of issues up here that can only be seen first by your dentist. 
Right. So you've got things like social media and, and everything is all geared towards aesthetics. How important are aesthetics in myofunctional therapy or is function the top priority? Function's always top priority, but in order to get really good function, sometimes you have to have the ability to have that good function. So when we have long, narrow faces that doesn't really create an environment that's conducive to being able to use your soft tissues the way you should. For example, the tongue, the tongue needs to have space for proper rest posture. So I'm sure you probably had no idea that there's somewhere your tongue should be when it's resting, when we're not eating, drinking, or talking. Well, the tongue actually should sit up against the roof of the mouth along the palate from the hard palate where you can feel all the bone if you rub your tongue along the roof of your mouth straight through to the soft palate. So that's a light suction up there at rest. When you have a very small, narrow palate or roof of the mouth, that's actually going to prohibit you from being able to keep that tongue up there because your tongue won't fit. And so we really focus on function with myofunctional therapy. However, we do need a lot of the aesthetics or the structure to be right for that environment to work out. Right. Just this, this whole idea of having a personal trainer for your face. That's incredible. Are you able to walk us through some of the exercises that you do? I can walk you through one or two. It's really stuff that seem very simple, but it does help to work in tone. So just to kind of preface before I give you an exercise, right? The tongue, everybody likes to think of it as one big muscle. And some people actually incorrectly call it the strongest muscle in the body. It's actually innervated by 16 different muscles. So these are eight pairs that are innervating from either side. So when we're working together and we're doing exercises, it's usually very personalized, like personal training might be, for the specific muscles, right? So it's going to seem like it's very simple, but it all has a target and a plan. So one of the basic level exercises are to have the tongue connect with the roof of the mouth, the palate. So we're going to try to establish suction. So we start by having a clicking sound. And then you try to hold and freeze that at the top. So you're going to be creating what we would call in the industry a cave. That's that tongue suctioned up. And the middle is nice and thin. We try to hold it for a good duration of time. At least, I think with most of my patients, I try to get towards 90 seconds. So if you feel like that for just those two, three seconds that we held there was a lot, it's probably a good indication (laughs) that you need some therapy because we've got to be able to hold this for just proper posture. How does a person know that these exercises are working for them? You really begin to feel it. So you don't feel it in the same way that when you're working with a personal trainer in the gym, you start to feel sore. You don't necessarily feel sore. Some might, but most times you really start to feel like you have more awareness of what's going on because we're using these muscles all the time. We cannot get around using our tongue, using our lips, our cheeks. We can't get around these things. This is constant all day long. So you'll feel the difference as you're talking as you're eating, as you're just breathing, as you're just aware of your tongue and your lips and what's going on throughout the day. Right. I know that like with, with 
singers when they're first starting out, they say that they get a lot of like tightness around their their jaw. Is that something that you hear a lot about from from singers? Yes. So oftentimes these things go hand in hand. When you're having some issues with your oral facial structure or the function, you're going to find that it makes things like difficult, makes things difficult such as you know, extending sounds, being able to really hold notes. This is all going to kind of play into place because some of the dysfunction can wear down on the joints for the jaw. So the jaw joint actually kind of rides like a swing almost. And so what there's fluid there because the body is always trying to protect ourselves, right? So we don't just have like this joint that's swinging against bone on bone. It's really a fluid there. So when there's dysfunction, it can weigh on that fluid especially as you're singing, as you're using a lot of that, opening up the mouth, having to extend notes, especially a lot of those long notes. Opera singers, you'll find, have a lot of trouble sometimes when they have oral facial dysfunction. And so wearing down on that joint, we can really help relieve a lot of that pressure by altering what's going on with the soft tissues that surround it. Does that have any changes on the way a person sings tonally? Yes, sometimes it does. it does. Yeah, sometimes they start to hear themselves better. Yeah, it improves their ability to achieve that perfect pitch, which is always what a lot of singers are looking for, like perfect pitch. Like one of the things that you're also really an expert in is breathing. People can go days without food, but only minutes without breathing. How important is the way a person breathes? Are there differences in people who are preferential mouth breathers versus those who are preferential nose breathers? That's a fantastic question. And I think a lot of people are will be surprised to find out that yes, there is. Physiologically, there's vast difference between the two. So when you are a nasal breather, you're using your nose and your nose is prepped and primed to provide you with natural filtration of that air. So we're getting rid of and eliminating a lot of the contaminants that are in the air, just naturally through the nose. We're humidifying that air, getting it to be nice and primed and ready for the lungs. And we're able to intake a good quality of air. So we're getting it up and through the nasal respiratory passage. That is going to give you good quality air with a lot of nitric oxide that helps it to bond to our blood. So now you've got good hemoglobin, we're going through the blood brain um, barrier and we're able to really utilize and optimize a lot of that oxygen that we've taken in. When you are inhaling through the mouth, there's no way for it to filter the only natural filter may possibly be your tonsils and that's going to be a problem because they will enlarge and that will constrict the oral pharyngeal space that oral respiratory passage then we don't have any way also to moisturize it because you think okay my mouth is full of saliva but if you have dry air coming in all through the day that dries out your mouth so now we don't have nice humid air to go into that lung passage and we're not going to be utilizing our diaphragm as well our diaphragm is that strong muscle that's holding up those lungs and helping and to assist with us 
breathing. That way, when we're getting that oxygen through our lungs, we're getting it deeper into the lungs. So we're getting it in the bottom third of the lungs. We're getting two thirds of the lungs full of air just by breathing through our nose alone because you're not getting that use of the diaphragm through your mouth. This is going to make it a poorer quality of oxygen, a lot more difficult for it to connect and bind with the blood. So now you've got a lower hemoglobin. You're kind of living in a state of deoxygenation. You're living in, you know, hypoxia is what they would call that medically, where you don't have enough oxygen to really fulfill your bodily functions. That's interesting. Even though the mouth is a larger opening than, than the nostrils, the amount of oxygen is less efficient. Yeah, yeah. It's really because the nose was built. It's designed for breathing. We've got that natural filter. We've got that natural humidifier. It is ready to take in all that it can. And the mouth just isn't built for that. It's built for a lot of other things. You know, I would never eat through my nose. <laughs> so I think the mouth <laughs> is perfect for that. But it's all about what these functions were designed to do. And that nose prime for breathing. In a lot of meditation practices, they teach you need to breathe through your nose longer than breathing out through your mouth. And then that helps you to lower down your, your heart rate and helps people to calm down. It is very true that you should expel a longer exhalation than you should take in an inhalation because when we think about the exhalation, you're letting go of carbon dioxide. You're letting go of that unused air with all the particles that the body did not need, right? So yes, to a degree, that part is correct, but it's really, really optimal that oxygenation in totality if it's all coming through the nose. Can you get more air out from your mouth? Sure, but that dry air that's coming out of your mouth is also drying out your saliva, which is gonna put you in for a lot of dental problems and is going to create a disharmony in between the natural pH of the mouth. A lot of people will find they'll, they'll get cavities from mouth breathing, they develop periodontal disease or gum disease from mouth breathing. So you wanna try to use your nose as much as possible. Yes, you can take a longer exhale. However, I would always do it through my nose as opposed to my mouth. Really? Through the nose? Yep. Hmm. Is there a difference between mouth breathing when awake versus asleep? I would say that mouth breathing while asleep is actually more detrimental. Is there a difference physiologically? Probably not a great one. You're still not doing what you're going to require to have your best, most productive day. You're not going to be able to think as clearly. You'll suffer from brain fog throughout the day if you're just mouth breathing all day long. However, that nighttime one, I would say, is more critical because when you lay down and you go to sleep, the body is trying to restore itself. You're trying to get a lot of these functions to be well for the next day. The brain will only cleanse itself. So we have our lymphatic system to cleanse a lot of other parts of our body. Our kidney is constantly cleansing. The liver is constantly cleansing. The brain will only cleanse itself during sleep. And if you're not oxygenating well enough, the body is going to have to prioritize things. You won't be able to cycle through your sleep stages appropriately, and your brain won't get to, one, 
process everything from the day. So that's that short-term memory retention. But two, cleanse itself because our brain has toxins and things that are in there as well. And the only time it flushes and drains is during sleep. So is there a difference physiologically? It's still not good to mouth breathe at night or during the day, but I would say at night is more detrimental. Detrimental, yeah. You're spending a lot of time in bed and then it's just going to affect the way you're going to be the, the following day. Exactly, exactly. I was just having this previous conversation with a previous guest about sleep. What are some common misconceptions people have around sleep? I think the biggest misconception is that if you have been in bed, okay, and you may have been resting for eight hours, but you didn't get quality sleep, you did not cycle through and get deep REM sleep, uh, you didn't dream, you weren't able to get really restful sleep, that you still did good because you were in bed for eight hours. The duration of time that you are able to sleep does not matter as much as the quality of that sleep. So if somebody comes to me and they're getting eight hours a night of very poor sleep, and another person comes to me and they're getting six hours at night of high quality sleep, I would say it's definitely the person who has the six hours of sleep that's going to be a lot more successful just going through life and being able to sustain daily normal functions because cognitive functions can be impaired with poor quality sleep. I would say the six hour person is a lot more successful than the eight hour person. So it's not the duration of time because people get hung up on this time. I have to sleep for eight hours a night. You have to sleep for however many it's going to give you really good quality sleep. So we don't want that. So it's not the duration. It's like the, the quality. The quality. And the number two biggest thing is that all these, these sleep aids, that if you take sleeping pills, it's equivalent to getting really good restful sleep because all that matters is that you're asleep. And it's not true. It's not really the case. When you take sleeping pills or when you take some sleep aids, a lot of times they're providing more of a sedative effect. And there's a vast difference between restorative sleep and being sedated. So you want to imagine being sedated as kind of being like in a coma. A person in a coma is not getting really good restful sleep. They're not restoring. They're just kind of on this lighter level of functioning. And so we want to really bust that myth as well. It's not good. <laughs> not good. Where does this idea of eight hours of sleep come from if people may not need to get eight hours of sleep? There were some studies done in the mid 20th century that really came to that conclusion. But I would say that where we were in the mid 20th century in the 1900s is vastly different from where we are now. People were eating probably a lot better, a lot more cooked at home food, far less preservatives, far less packaged processed foods. We didn't have as much exposure to technology. We weren't all indoors all the time, with less exposure to light and natural sunlight at that. A lot has changed in the world. It's changed the shape and the composition of our bodies. Different things have spiked in values since then, as far as different diseases, diabetes has gone up, autism has gone up, things that you, know, you weren't seeing at that time that people were measuring sleep at those longer durations, they had a whole different life than we have now. So now it's really good to take the bodies that we're developing now because everything's changing. Structurally, people are changing. 
take that into account with the fact that quality sleep has to be prioritized over the duration because the duration really doesn't matter. There are some people who have a genetic condition where they are able to sleep for even less than six hours, maybe like three hours, and then they can function just as well. Is this something that that you've heard about with people with a, a genetic condition? I have heard about that, and I do think it's so interesting. I want to see so much more research on it, but I do think it's definitely possible. We have a lot of very successful people who are very open about the fact that they don't get a lot of sleep, but they are able to function at a high capacity, run multi-million dollar businesses, be able to sustain life at a higher quality than some of us who are just struggling with our typical eight hours. So I think that is something that we definitely need a lot more research on so that we can study the quality of that sleep. But there's so many conditions that can quantify sleep for us. There are even people with delayed sleep phase disorder where they can't sleep during night. They have to sleep during the day or they sleep longer during the day. There's so many sleep conditions and I would love to see a lot of the research on the two, three hour sleepers. But I very much believe that if you're getting quality sleep, the duration does not matter. There's this huge movement now in Silicon Valley where a lot of CEOs are really pushing their, their employees to, to really sleep better. And they're, and they're really telling them, I want you to brag about getting good quality sleep, not, oh, I only got two hours of sleep and got so much work done. Yes. It is costing employers a lot of money to have sleepy employees. I mean, that's really the bottom line of that is in America, it's averaging about $1,400 a year per employee that you have working for you that is on poor sleep. It's actually been considered by the Center for Disease Control here in America, a epidemic that there are a lot of people running on sleep deprivation. It's probably one in three. And so that in and of itself is a reason for employers to have concerns because when you have poor sleep, like I said, cognitive functions are going to be impaired. And we need people to be at tip top form if they're going to be doing especially dangerous work, such as truck drivers or people who are running heavy machinery. We need them to be able to sustain themselves. So yes, I think it's important that we reward people who are focused on quality sleep over quantity. There's a lot of parents that say, I want my surgeon to be well rested if they're going to be having surgery on me or my child. Very true. That's it. But it's really important because so much can go wrong. And so we want to eliminate as many of those variables as possible. Exactly. One of the previous guests on the podcast is the UK sleep physician Guy Lishner. And he refers to himself as part sleep specialist, part detective and part marriage counselor. The last <laughs> part I was I was really surprised by. From what you you have observed what impact does good sleep have on marriages? So much. I mean, first we want to start off by the fact that I think snoring is a really big thing that will take a lot of people into separate rooms during their marriage. And so I think that just eliminating that alone is incredibly helpful to many, many marriages, but also the concept of just restless sleep that's going to be an issue. You're trying to share a bed with a partner and they're rolling all over. They're kind of moving around all night. It creates so many issues. Like I said, with the cognitive impairment, that's a big thing too. 
somebody who's having a tough time either maintaining a job, maintaining focus, being able to really engage with the world or with their spouse, that's going to be a problem. And so I think that I would agree 100%. He's like the best marriage counselor probably there is. <laughs> like there, there are even times when like sleep problems are not due to anything biological, but because it's like external, such as when parents become parents for the first time, they have to take care of a kid. 24-7. Very true. Very true. I would say the best way to kind of mitigate that would be to sleep and take naps as often as you can. Now, I'm a mother of four, so I know that that's a struggle. That's a big ask to nap and sleep when the baby is sleeping, but it is a very, very important thing to try to work around a lot of what external factors you may have when you have children, when you're traveling, when you're doing things that are going to impact your schedule. It's very, very important to try to get in naps and catch up, although you can't necessarily catch up, but you can fall into as much of a restorative sleep as you can get during that hour or so you might have during the day. How valuable is that are those naps in comparison to full night's sleep? I would prefer full night's sleep, preferred all the way. However, if naps are going to be a way that you can use to recover, I would absolutely suggest that you can recover. I mean, the best part of kindergarten for me was nap time. And so I'm always trying to relive that. A midday nap is the best thing ever. <laughs> I think that it is very helpful for those who are, are struggling. Like I said, a lot of external factors, or like you said, a lot of external factors do exist. And so you can't always have the ideal situation. But when you can supplement with a nap, it's wonderful. One of the things that Guy brought up when, when I was speaking to him was that not a lot of doctors are trained in sleep unless they, they specialize in it. Was, was sleep something that, that you've been taught in your prior degrees, apart from myofunctional therapy? I know. No, not at all. It's very, very sad that we're not talking about it enough. Most of the general physicians that go through residency or even just a medical program here in America are getting less than two hours of education on sleep. Yet it is something that all of us need about a third of our lives to have done. And so it's very, very sad that we're not more focused on it. There should be better screenings and assessments available. That way they are able to really get to the root of that and refer to somebody because we can't treat all things, right? So even though your general physician or your primary physician might not be aware or have good education, they should at least be able to screen for some of these things and refer out to someone who is more knowledgeable. And so it's very sad and highly regrettable that we're not able to have as much education as possible. And we're hoping to try to change that in the future. There are plenty of movements working towards it. How did you learn more about sleep? Because you're, you're an expert in this. Yeah, I had to dive deep. I had to just dive deep and seek out information on my own. Um, I did a lot of networking with people around me. And so sleep physicians are really the best people to talk to. Many of them here are pulmonologists. And so when they are educating, 
they really go deep into what's the nitty gritty? What is it that you need to invest to learn more about obstructive sleep apnea, sleep breathing disorders? And then from there, you go with all the recommendations, all the books, all the courses, anything that you can take so that you can really master this craft because it's difficult even for a physician who might be trying to learn more. It's very difficult. So I would say the very first thing to do is talk to somebody who is a specialist because they'll know the best way to guide. Right. As a myofunctional therapist, do you are you involved in that diagnosis of, of sleep problems? I'm involved in the screening. I wouldn't say necessarily the diagnosis because we leave the diagnosis for those sleep physicians. They do the official diagnosis and the sleep studies. But I am definitely involved in the screening. I'm able to see a lot of the signs that would show up functionally and developmentally within my area of expertise. <laughs> and so, yes, I do participate, but I don't diagnose. Don't diagnose. Right. As we come towards the end of our episode, I've got a few remaining questions that I ask every guest. What does living healthier today mean to you? Living healthier today means to me that I am able to be present. That is my number one focus. We only have one life that we know of. And so while I'm here, I want to be as present as possible. So being healthy is my ability to be present, to be out and to be active and engaged with others. Right. It is one of the main themes amongst all of the, the guests that they want to be healthy so they can show up better for other people. Yeah, because that's what it's all about. And I think those are some of the best cases where you get testimonials from your clients and they're just really more present and engaged. And I think that that is prime for me in my life and why I got into it. And I think it's the best part of working with others. Carice, you've come a long way from the time you were 18 to where you are now. What would you tell your 18-year-old self? Ooh, I think I would tell her to, to stay strong, to stay strong and be brave. My 18-year-old self was very nervous about everything in the world, and I think that led me to hold back on some things. And so I think that I would encourage my 18-year-old self to stay strong, and you'll find the path. Did you know that you wanted to become a health professional at 18? Not at all. I thought it was going to be a dancer. <laughs> a dancer? What kind of dancer? Latin dancer? Yeah, just like a like a jazz instructor. Like, like a dancer. I thought it was really going to be deep in dance. Maybe own a studio or something, but totally different path now. I don't even dance anymore. <laughs> I believe Cuban salsa is really big in, in, in Florida. Uh, it probably is. I've never even tried dancing salsa. Well... Maybe that could be on the bucket list. Yes, yes. Is there any last remaining things you would like to share? I think my biggest thing that I always stress on is that if you think there's an issue, most likely there might be one. And so it's always important to try to seek out your own, be your best advocate, I think is the best way I can put that. Be your own advocate. When you think something's wrong, most likely there might be something that is. And so advocate for yourself because a lot of traditional medicine is going to be palliative in care and it's not really going to be looking to treat the root cause. And so you might have to do some digging yourself. 
Now leading her own private practice, the Myospot, Caress has helped hundreds of patients across the country and is a revered leader in myofunctional therapy awareness. Share this podcast with one person who you think would benefit from it. Leave a rating and review of the Healthy Today podcast on Apple Podcasts. Our team includes assistant Tania and Akia Sadia, scriptwriter Brian Ariotto, and voiceover Yanni Harris. This episode was produced by Resonate Recordings. In tomorrow's episode, you will hear from psychotherapist Victoria Rivera about overcoming self-sabotage.